2 Kings chapter 6, beginning at verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cap of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how will I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? The king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we, sh and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the, heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. He said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, You see how this murderer has sent to take, take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? While he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we still here until we die? Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we also die. So now, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. When they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. The Lord had made an army of the, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we were silent and wait until the morning light, Punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied in the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians, so that a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. The people trampled him in the gate, so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came, came down to him. But when the man of God had said, 
to the king, two seeds of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and to see a fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. May God bless the preaching of his word. This morning, we have a rather long, detailed, and complex account of a series of events that took place in association with a famine in Israel. I was tempted to divide this section into a number of portions uh, to handle a more manageable aspect of God's Word. However, in doing so, I thought it would really destroy the big picture that is presented in this passage. So I've decided to try to address the entire narrative from 2 Kings 6.23 through the end of chapter 7. We're not going to be able to look at every detail uh, in uh, great detail, obviously, but we can get a glimpse of what is the overall picture that we should see from this chapter. The thread that is going to tie the message together is looking at the various responses to adversity that are presented in this passage. There are a number of characters, and what we are going to do is look at each narration of each character and emphasize their response to adversity and ultimately what our response to adversity ought to be. The adversity is the profound scarcity of food and the troubles that accompany it. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 25, it says there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. Until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of, of silver. The scarcity of food was the result of a siege that was brought about by the Syrians. A siege was an army's surrounding a city, cutting them off from any resources so that no one could go out and come in. Notice in verse 24, it says, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. That is, they encompassed the city with troops. And as a result, there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. The idea behind a siege was to starve people into surrendering without a fight, that they would have no recourse over a period of time, but to surrender to those that were holding them captive by means of a siege. As the narrative opens, the siege is having its desired effect and bringing about a scarcity of food and an intolerable situation. It tells us in verse 25 that things had gotten so bad in the middle of 25 until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab's dung for shekels of five shekels of silver. So these are astronomical prices for food you wouldn't want to eat. Now, you wouldn't want to eat a donkey's head, and you certainly wouldn't want to eat the dung from a dove. But things had gotten so terribly bad, there was no food, that even astronomical prices were being paid for what would normally be inedible. So now we're going to consider the various responses to this intolerable situation. What were people going to do? Well, first, we have the response of two women. Their response is a, a tragic hopelessness. A tragic hopelessness. A woman seeks the king's help in verse 26. Now, as the king of Israel was 
passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my lord, O king. The king realizes that whatever it is that this woman wants, that he's not going to be able to do anything about it. Or he says in verse 27, he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? The king is frustrated by all that is taking place. The king is powerless to bring about any kind of relief. He can't man an army. He can't bring in foodstuffs. He is helpless. He is limited in what he can do. And while it is obvious that the king is limited in what he can do, that fact is lost on both the woman and even the king. For when he says, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? On one hand, he's acknowledging his limitations and he's saying only God can help you, but in reality, he's not even looking to God. He's not praying to God. He's not seeking God's help, it would seem. He's just talking about his inabilities, his inabilities. What do you expect me to do about it? Well, it's helpful to keep in mind and the truth not be lost upon us that so often we look to government for solutions to which government has no solution. <laughs> whether it be peace, whether it be safety, whether it be crime, whatever it is that, that we look for our government to solve so that we can live in peace and prosperity rather than looking to God. It is very common that the response to adversity is to look to a government officials and plead our case and they help us. Nevertheless, the king listens to her plight. So the woman tells her shocking story, verses 28 and 29. And the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. So this woman is coming to the king looking for justice. She's looking for some kind of fairness. We had a deal. One day we were going to eat my child, and the next day we were going to eat her child, and we ate my child, but when it came time to eat her child, she balked and hid her child. Well, we're struck at the hopelessness of the situation and the dire measures to which this woman is taking. To eat one's children is absolutely deplorable. We are shocked by the lack of shame and there is no indication of any kind of remorse. There is also no sense of compassion. This woman who has eaten her son, which just kind of boggles the mind, has no compassion for this woman who wants to hide her son. All she can see is injustice. All she can see is unfairness. And so we have this strange appeal for justice. She wants the king to say, she has to hand over her child so you can eat that child. Again, I would just point out to you a lack of appeal to God. Nothing about asking God to supply, to deliver, whatever the case may be. They are taking things into their own hands and acting in rather bizarre ways of bringing about what they have as a desired end, and that is just to preserve their lives. And they're willing to go to any extent to do it. But they are looking only at their limited resources. And unfortunately, in this case, it's their children. But we get the sense of how utterly desperate and tragic the situation is. Now we look at the response of the king. 
King's response is an angry defiance of God. An angry defiance of God. First, the king is devastated by what, the, what he hears in verse 30. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. The king is shocked. The king is disheartened. The king is amazed. Imagine being king and hearing the effects that this is having upon his people. And so he is just beside himself in thinking of this situation. And as a result, the king becomes angered at God and God's prophet. He was wearing sackcloth, which was a sign of repentance. Notice what it tells us in verse 30. He tore his clothes. Now he was passing by the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. This is a strange account. For sackcloth represented uh, repentance. Sackcloth was supposed to represent one's uh, need of, of God. But what was unusual is that he was wearing it under other clothes. The point of the sackcloth was to publicly declare this, this uh, repentance and this lamentation. But he's hiding it. Or it's not genuine, it's not real, it's not sincere. But when he tore his clothes, it, it was revealed. But again, it wasn't genuine. And the lack of the genuineness can be seen in his response. His real heart is revealed in his tirade against Elisha, verse 31. And he said, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So as far as the king is concerned, this is all Elisha's fault. The prophet of God. He has gotten us into this mess. And so he is to blame. It is not unusual that when people are mad at God, that they are mad at God's people. Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. There is guilt by association. And many times, as I say, when people are upset with God, then they are upset with God's people. I have learned a very long time ago that when people think that God is treating them unjustly or unfairly, that it's no surprise that they think the church is failing them as well. If they think God is failing them, how much more are they going to think the church is failing them. God is perfect, we're not, okay? But here is this uh, angered response against God. So I asked the question, was God to blame? Was God to blame? God is certainly at work in this situation. The famine was under God's control, as is evidenced by God's ability to alleviate the famine and to restore the food. So it's definitely under God's control. But is it God's fault? That is, did God do something wrong? Is God blameworthy for all that is taking place? You must keep in mind that God had been repeatedly making himself known to the people of Israel as a gracious God who is able to deliver them from their enemies. We've been looking at passage after passage in which I've been emphasizing that God has been revealing himself to his people. God is showing his strength. God is showing his power. God is showing his mercy. God is showing his grace after miracle, after miracle, after miracle. And it must be kept in mind that the people of Samaria had cast off their allegiance to Jehovah and had continued in their worship of false gods despite the witnesses of Elijah and Elisha. 
Though God had done great and mighty things among them, both through the prophet Elijah and now Elisha, the people continue on in their rebelliousness and in their false worship. Most recently, God had attested to his saving power by leading a band of soldiers into the city of Samaria, which we looked at last week. When they were struck with blindness, they came to arrest Elisha. Elisha leads them into the city. And if you look at verse 23, it says, so he prepared for them a great feast uh, because the king wanted to kill them and he was not allowed to. So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. Now we have these words, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. But God was gracious. God gave them peace. God gave them rest. God showed that he had power over the Syrian army and that God could protect them, and yet there's no repentance, and yet there is no change, and yet there is no worship of God. Their response all this was indifference. They took it for granted. So notice verse 24 says, afterward, that is, after this peace and after there was a cessation of raids, afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So time has passed, but it wants us to connect the dots between God's deliverance of the city when an army was brought in, as opposed to later when the city is besieged. But it also informs us of probably what's going on in the mind of the king and why he's so upset with Elisha. For Elisha had said, let these people go. Let the army return. The king's thinking, I knew it. I said it. I wanted to kill them all. That Elisha guy, he said, let him go. So I let him go. And now look at the mess we're in. So he's angered at Elisha. So what is happening is directly related to the previous deliverance. Verse 24 says afterwards, afterwards. But we need to keep in mind that the people had abandoned the word of God. The consequences were severe as described in the word of God. Or there's a, a very informing theology that's given to us in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's a warning to the nation of Israel that when they are in the promised land, that they will have a tendency to wander from God. And though they are in a land that is flowing with milk and honey, though they are in a rich and prosperous land, if they continue, if if they just will go on and on in hardening their necks if they just refuse the goodness and grace of God, then things are going to go very difficult for them. They're going to experience God's discipline that is intended to bring them back to himself. So in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says this, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore, You shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness, in lack of everything. Through a continued hardening of hearts, it describes the terrible conditions that will result. Okay, Your hardness of heart, your your wickedness is going to result in unbelievable misery. Here it is. They shall besiege you in all your towns, until your high and fortified cities in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you, and you shall eat the fruit of your womb. 
the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress which your enemies shall distress you. God had said to the nation, if you fail to worship me, if you start trusting in, in walls and you start trusting in armies, things are going to go really bad. In fact, they're going to get so bad that you're going to eat your own children. That's how terrible things are going to come. That's how wicked you are going to become. That's how sinful you are going to become. And so, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. And the very warning of God is fulfilled. In their stubbornness and in their rebellion, in their failure to recognize the goodness and grace of God that was manifested over and over and over again, things had gotten this bad. And again, they're not repentant. They're not seeking God. They're not saying, God, look at what we have done. They're taking matters into their own hands. So what is notable is that the king does not seek God's help. The king does not seek guidance from Elisha. The king seeks to further rebel against God. His response is to counterproductive, to say the least. He is determined to kill Elisha. That's what he says. I'm going to kill him. Far from being repentant. The response of Elisha. A confident, faithful trust in God and his word. The response of Elisha. The faithful, confident trust in God's word. Elisha is well aware of the king's plan to behead Elisha, verse 32. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Just as Elisha knew the movements of the Syrian army, so God here reveals the words and the message of the king to Elisha before the messenger ever arrives. He knows what's taking place. Elisha takes precautions, but he is not scared of the king. End of verse 32. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. There's not the sound of his master's feet behind him. So he says, bar the door. Don't let him in. The king's message is revealing. Verse 33. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, and so it would appear that perhaps he is shouting through the door, this trouble is from the Lord. Well, yes and no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, God's behind this. But you brought this on yourself. It's very much the same kind of interaction that we saw many weeks ago with Ahab and uh, Elijah after the uh, famine that took place. And they meet, and Ahab says to Elijah, my enemy, go here. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, so he says, uh, the trouble is from the Lord. And then this curious statement, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Uh, it would seem that the king was previously told to trust in God. That, that evidently there must have been dialogue that had taken place previously between this king and Elisha, of which he is calling upon the king to repent and the trust in God. However, the king doesn't want to hear that anymore. He said, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? We are at the last straw. What do you expect? I'm going to kill you. But Elisha continues to declare the word of God. 
verse 1 of chapter 7. Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow, about this time, a seah uh, of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, two seahs of uh, barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Elisha is not afraid. So he speaks, and he speaks the truth. But I want you to, to also note that Elisha is also very disciplined. For Elisha says, hear the word of the Lord. And so he declares the word. It's a promise tomorrow, this time. A say of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel. Two say is a barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. But what he does is simply declare the word of God and doesn't mingle his own thoughts or attitudes with God's message. Remember when Moses got fed up with the children of Israel because they're always complaining and always grumbling? You know, it gets old if people are out to kill you all the time. Just in case you didn't realize that, you know. It does get old when, when, when people want to behead you and when people don't trust in God, when all these things go terribly wrong. But Elisha doesn't defend himself. Elisha doesn't rebuke the king. Elisha doesn't have a negative word to say or response. Elisha does not take matters into his own hands one iota. He does not even pronounce judgment when God has furnished Elijah with a message of grace. He does something that Moses didn't do. Moses, in his frustration, when he was told to speak to the rock, struck the rock. But Elisha stays true to the word and just declares the word of God and leaves his own thoughts and attitudes and responses out of it. Well, that's not the prophet's role. The prophet is to speak for God. And that's very important as we look at the outcome. We also see that Elisha believes what God says. Verse 1. Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. 24 hours from now, things are going to look a lot different. Elisha has to take that by faith. Elisha has to believe that that's true, that God is able to supply, that God is able to bring this to pass. He's giving a promise to a king that I submit to you is pretty incredible. But he believes God. And so in believing God, again, he declares God's word. The response of the king's aid is a cynical unbelief in limiting the power of God. So the response of the king's aid is a cynical unbelief in limiting the power of God. Verse 2, then the captain on whose hand the king leaned, that was his right-hand man, if you will, then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? This is incredible. This is impossible. You're telling me in 24 hours, the economy is going to change. All of this stuff is going to be sold dirt cheap, that everybody's going to have enough food, and we're going to experience an incredible provision in 24 hours. You have any wonder that he would be skeptical at best? that he might think that that's a little much, that that's unrealistic, that that can't be done, that even God can't do it. It is hard to imagine how such a promise can be fulfilled. It would be difficult if you didn't know the story. You didn't know the next verses. To come up in your own mind 
a scenario that would bring this to pass. How, how could this happen? The response is understandable. However, the response limits the power of God to what we might think possible. There's an incredible lesson for us as we think about trusting God. And that is, it's easy to come up with scenarios of how God is going to provide. And if he doesn't, we eventually think he can't provide. Especially when things get bleaker and bleaker. Hence, our call to worship. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. We constantly have to be reminded of the God that we serve. Don't limit God's ability, his wisdom, his power, his justice, his strength, his mercy, his compassion. God is infinite, and he can do infinitely more than what we ask or think. Response of the lepers. Theirs is a pragmatic concern with self-preservation. A pragmatic concern with self-preservation. They have a very rational response to the famine, starting at verse 3. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city. So that's out. Uh, we shouldn't just storm. They're lepers. They're not allowed in the city. But they say, well, it doesn't make any sense for us to, to break the, the laws and violate the rules that we stay out of the city because there's no food in the city anyway. And we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. We're going to die anyway. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. When they came to the edge of the camp of Assyria, behold, there was no one there. Now we are given verses 6 and 7. It's, it's an aside, an aside. Uh, you can think of a, a play. Uh, sometimes in the middle of a play, there is an aside. That is, someone walks forward uh, in the, uh, during the, the play and tells you something that you need to know, a narrator who is giving you an insight into the plot. That's what we have here. The narrator is telling us something that we know that the lepers don't. Okay? Verses 6 and 7. Here's what we're, we get to know that the lepers don't. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. So we're told, God's behind this. We're, we're told what God did, created this, this noise and this sound and the fear of the army, and so they leave. All right, we get to know that. The lepers know that when they get there, lo and behold, the army's gone. And they left everything behind. And there's all this food and abundance and wealth and everything. So they have a very rational and pragmatic response. First, they avail themselves of the abundance, verse 8. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. So they're getting all the loot together and carrying it off and making themselves rich. And then they decided to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Verse 9. They said one to another, we're not doing right. Okay. This isn't right. But notice the reason it's not right. 
This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. If, if we don't tell what we've been found, we're in trouble. So we better tell somebody. So these are, they're going to do the right thing, but they're doing it for the wrong reason. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. They bring news to the city, verse 10. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. And that's all they know. They don't know about the noise. They don't know about God and all these other. That's what they know. As we think about their response, they respond in a very self-serving manner. They first supply their own needs, eat and carry off stuff, and eventually are convicted that this is going to get them in trouble. They end up doing the right thing for the wrong reason. But I, I want to point out to you that they don't thank God. They don't recognize his provision. Now, realize they don't have the knowledge that we do from those two verses, but they should have recognized God at work. They should have been aware that God had provided for them. But there is no awareness. There is no knowledge. There is no thankfulness. There is no worship. There is no glorification of God here. They don't say at the gates, hear what God has done. They just say, there's food available. But God has been very gracious to them in supplying for them, watching over them, protecting them. And we have the response of the king, which is a continued lack of awareness concerning the truth of God. The response of the king, a continued lack of awareness concerning the truth of God. When the king hears what has taken place, the king is skeptical, verses 11 and 12. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household, and the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. So the king says, this is a trap. This is a trap. This stinks. High heaven. They didn't flee. They're hiding. And when we come out and try to get the food, they're going to come out of hiding and they're just going to wipe us out. They're tired of waiting. So the king's servant comes up with a plan, verse 13. And one of the servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that, they're, that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So the king goes along with the plan to some degree. Verse 14, so they took two horsemen. All right, so here's the compromise. Send five. No, but I'll send two. Because I, I think this is stupid. So we might as well lose two men instead of five men. We at least keep three horses alive. But we'll send two. And the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. What can it hurt? So they went after them as far as the Jordan. And behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. And what I want you to see is that the king does not associate the events that are taking place with the word that was spoken by Elisha just hours before. 
the king, when he hears, doesn't say, oh, my, isn't God amazing? Who would have thought it? The Syrians have picked up and run. That Elisha guy, man, it's amazing what he knows. He doesn't put two and two together. He doesn't respond in faith. He doesn't believe. He's skeptical. He goes along because there's nothing else he can do, but at least he's trying to save three of the horses and horsemen so that not all of them are lost in this foolish endeavor. But he fails to see God at work. He fails to repent. He fails to thank God. On and on and gone in these similar responses that all fail to see the grace and goodness of God. Which brings us to our response to the narrative. We are told the significance of what comes next. For in the remaining verses, now a message comes to us. We are reminded that God's word is reliable no matter how amazing it may seem. Look at verse 16. And the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, two seahs of barley for a shekel, and now this simple statement, according to the word of the Lord. What God said came to pass. Verse 17. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he had leaned to have charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gate so that he died. Now this statement, as the man of God had said, when the king came down to him, again, this is a fulfillment of what God said. This is a fulfillment of God's word. Verse 18. For when the man of God had said to the king, back to God's word again, God's word, God's word, God's word. For the man of God had said to the king, Two sayas of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a say of fine flour for a shekel about the time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. The people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Again, God's word is fulfilled. God's word is fulfilled. God's word is fulfilled. That's the takeaway. God's word is fulfilled. God's word is fulfilled both in judgment and provision. Judgment in the siege came. Judgment in the fact that here are women eating their own offspring because of their sinfulness and because of their wickedness and because of their rebellion. It's also a message of God's provision. What I really want to emphasize to you this morning is God's gracious provision. God's gracious provision. Let me work this through with you. First, gracious to Elijah in sparing his life and entrusting him with the word of God. That's pretty readable to see. Gracious to the king. God had repeatedly shown his power to the king of Israel. Through the healing of Naaman, through the soldiers that were brought into the city, he repeatedly showed the king of his might and his power. God is graciously patient with the king. The king who raises his fist and says, I'm going to kill Elisha. God doesn't allow that to happen. But in this entire narrative, there is no judgment upon that king or his actions or his response. Gracious to the lepers who only are acting in self-preservation, who are not seeking to do a will of God, are not even 
desirous of helping the city, but only thinking of themselves, and even after they eat of all of the abundance, are still only thinking of themselves and their own hide, that's the only thing that causes them to go to the city and tell the others, because they want to preserve their own life. God is gracious to these very selfish, self-centered individuals who, again, don't thank God, who don't worship God, who have no positive response to God, and yet God provides for the lepers. God is gracious to the city. God provides them with food, though there is no mention of repentance on the part of anyone in this narrative. As you read through all these different people, not one of them, not one of them, now I'm accepting Elisha who is serving God, but None of them have repented. But God, in his grace, brings the siege to an end. God, in his compassion, looks down upon them and says, enough is enough. I'm going to take it away. No one asks him to. No one believes he can. But in his grace and his mercy, he says, I'm going to do this. All again, without repentance. All again, without seeking forgiveness. And all again, with no response of thanks, praise, or worship. God is a gracious God. God is a merciful God. That's the message. And that's why it had been so terrible for Elisha to have mingled his thoughts or it would have corrupted the message of God. And that is that God is a gracious God. And here, to me, is the most profound aspect of God's grace in this passage. That is God's grace to the Syrians. For God had repeatedly made himself known to the Syrians. Remember, Naaman's Assyrian, the captain of the army, who God heals of leprosy and he goes back and is able to tell the king of Syria what he has done. And the king of Syria rebels against Israel and brings raids against Israel and sends an army to arrest Elisha because Elisha's been revealing, this is last week, about the king's army's movement and this army goes to arrest um, Elisha. God causes the, them to be confused and Elisha marches them into the very center of the city, and God spares their lives and says, go home. And they go home. Verse 23 says, and they quit raiding. But that wore off. That wore off. You know, you would think that the Syrians would have thought, you know, it might not be the best thing to fight Israel. Things haven't been going too well lately. But now things have seemed to go in pretty well. Now, now they seem like they have the upper hand. Now they have sieged the city. Now the city is just about in their grasp. And what happens? God sends a noise that tricks them into thinking that there is another army that's coming to fight them. And, and in their terror, they flee. They flee. We have a gracious God, people. This wicked nation, Syria, 
who is out to destroy God's people and who refuse to bow and acknowledge and worship God, God, first of all, spares their lives. Again! He could have sent fire from heaven. Last week, we saw that there were chariots of fire. He could have sent the heavenly army against them. He could have had the Israelites rise up and slaughter them. They didn't lose a single man. They just hightailed it and ran. Here is the grace and mercy of God that shows kindness even to his enemies. How we are to show kindness and grace to our enemies. And once again, and here's the greatest aspect of God's mercy, is he bears witness to who he is. He bears witness to the Syrians of his power of his might, of his ability to defend his people and his grace in preserving their lives alive. What better God for the Syrians to worship and serve than the God of Israel? The great takeaway, first of all, it's God's grace to us. God's grace to us. God's grace in providing for us even in the midst of our own sinfulness. We take for granted our daily bread. We take for granted God's goodness. A siege could come against us but it doesn't. But it doesn't. God is gracious with us in being patient, even when we doubt his word. You ever read something in the Bible and you just think, wow, I, that, that's pretty hard to accept. That's, that's pretty hard to believe. Or more importantly, in our own lives, our own response to adversity when things are not going our way, when things are tough and legitimately tough, when we are suffering, what is our response to God? How do we view God? Do we raise our fist in defiance and blame God? You don't really love me, you don't really care for me, you don't really provide for me, you can't, or whatever. We raise our fist before God, or do we bend our knee? Do we get on our knees and plead and beg with God for his forgiveness and his help and his mercy and his grace? God is gracious to us, showing us what he can do in his love and his care for us. So the great takeaway is in terms of adversity, may we not raise our fist to God, but rather bend our knee to God. Let us not limit what God can do. Let us be mindful of how gracious God is. Gracious God is. And how gracious we are to be in our interacting, even with our enemies. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust tells us to pray for our enemies. And as we saw last week, it was to feed our enemies. For in so doing, we heap coals of fire on their head. They just become more and more accountable. Boy, the Syrians should have learned. The Israelites should have learned. May we learn. We have a gracious God who provides, even when we don't deserve it. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for being a gracious and loving and merciful God. 
Forgive us in our times of lack of faith. And Lord, help us to believe that you can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. And Lord, help us to learn of your goodness. And Lord, not fail to give you the thanks and the praise and the glory that you are so richly deserving. For no one in this passage expresses thankfulness or praise or glory for what you have done. Lord, help us to speak forth your praise, your honor, and your glory for your grace in our lives. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.